Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Fede and Monse are here tonight. We thank you that so many others have joined as well, that we are back in the study. Thank you for this room as always and the many provisions, large and small, that make possible our study. Father, we don't often remember how many others are listening online, but I do pray for them as well, Father. I pray tonight that the work we do here in a steady fashion week after week is, is reaching many who, who need it, perhaps many who have no other alternative and have been brought to this study by your hand. We pray for them as well that this study would meet their needs. And we ask that all the teaching that's done here would be according to your spirit and that you would be in control such that you would receive the glory and that uh, each of us, Father, would, would feel your presence through what we learn. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are just finishing chapter 4 and then we'll go into chapter 5. But in where we left off at verse 20 last week in chapter 4, the Sanhedrin had done their inquiry of what they saw in the temple and they had pronounced against Peter and John that they should stop doing what they were doing, which was speaking in the name of Jesus, causing this uproar. And in response to that legal precedent, the two apostles replied, well, if that's what you want us to do, that's different than what God wants us to do. You tell us who should we obey? which is a way of saying we're not going to do what you have asked us to do. Remember, these men represented the ruling council. In many respects, you could say they were the Supreme Court of Israel simply because there was no higher authority. So the highest ruling council in Israel made a determination that had the force of law and stipulated that Christians could no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, that's going to become the basis for further action later in the book of Acts. As we begin to see the Jewish persecution against Christians, and you may even know going forward in the book, you may remember Paul has letters that he's carrying on the road to uh, give him lawful right to arrest Christians and bring them to trial. That process all began here because of a legal ruling by the highest court in the land. So don't miss that as we look at it. Now, moving forward from that point, verse 21. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And this just completes the scene, and it's a fairly self-explanatory ending here, but a couple of observations. First, Luke implies, although he doesn't say it, but he implies that these leaders were prepared and actually willing to take stronger action. They just couldn't. They just couldn't find a basis on which to act. And what kept them honest was the crowd. So you had two forces here. You had a lack of clear evidence on which to convict, plus the crowd being in, in favor of these men for what they've done, forcing the Sanhedrin to be honest. Because let me tell you, if they didn't have that requirement to be honest, they probably wouldn't have been. They weren't with Jesus, obviously. So they're in a box here. The problem is the apostles haven't violated anything that is pro prohibited or failed to do something that's required. They simply healed a man, which is actually a praiseworthy act. And that man, as the text says, being 40 years old, was clearly healed through a miracle. There's just no denying it. And as a result of that miracle, there's this outcry of praise from among those who were in the courtyard. Set the scene in your mind properly, remembering what we've already learned. This crowd is somewhere around 5,000 people. So in the way that this crowd was brought to faith so suddenly and they've stuck around and they're praising God over this miracle, 
it's forced the Sanhedrin to be very conscious of what the crowd is thinking and saying. It had it been a small number of people, they wouldn't have felt the same pressure. So even in the size of the crowd, it's apparent God has miraculously prepared a defense for Peter and for John. So naturally, as they are admonished, I love the thought there at the beginning when it says they threaten them further. What are you going to say? It's really kind of interesting. I'm sure they threatened them with further legal action, but they did that in place of anything more stern because they didn't have a choice. And it probably became apparent to Peter and John that that was the case. So after they are let go, naturally what they do is they return to their brethren in the city, to the other apostles and to the other believers. And that's where the story picks up now, of course. Verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So the response of the apostles and of the believers to the story that Peter and John relate is to take their relief and their praise directly to the Lord in this extended prayer, this extended time of praise. And they praise him for the obvious reason of his grace, allowing these men to be released. That's not the part that's hard to understand, of course. But what's interesting is the way they pray. And in particular, they pull in from Psalm 2, a section of that psalm, and they pray essentially around that psalm. Reading the entire psalm, if we go back and read all of Psalm 2, we get a much better sense of how this psalm, or perhaps why this psalm, became so important to these Christians or was so readily coming to mind for them as they were hearing the story of the apostles. So let me read you Psalm 2. It's only 12 verses, not very long. So Psalm 2 goes like this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now the psalm itself, just staying in the context of Psalm 2, it describes how the world opposes the Messiah and then 
it places that opposition specifically in the last days around his return because it it puts together the opposition with his crushing of it, which we know happens in the second coming. So it's not real specific. It's more general, but it does place the, the setting in that general timeline because of some of the things that it says. It's a description of the resistance that the world has to the Messiah and in the way that the Messiah is God's chosen, the Father's chosen ruler, he will have an easy time vanquishing all of that resistance and setting up his rule. And behind the scenes, now notice this is implied in the psalm, but it's not stated as clearly as it did in Acts, but it's implied in the psalm that the Father is orchestrating all of this stuff behind the scenes. That the Father anticipates that there's going to be this resistance and he scoffs and he laughs at him. You can almost hear the laugh. And then he has his son as he turns to him in the psalm and he says, ask of me what you'd like. I'll give you whatever inheritance you want. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. You get a sense in the way the psalm is constructed that while the earth is below resisting anything God would choose to do, the father is all but dismissing that and turns to the son and says, you tell me what you want. It's yours. And of course, as we understand it, the father gives the son the inheritance of the nations and of a people and of a bride. And all he and he comes down to rule over all of that inheritance. Now, why does that psalm come to mind in the midst of hearing that Peter and John have been released? I mean, you grant you it has you, know, you could go to anywhere in Scripture, really, I guess. But why that psalm? What is it about that psalm? And, and more importantly, what is it that makes it an encouraging thing? Because you get a sense out of the book of Acts in chapter four that they respond with this praise and this prayer in the psalm because it's encouragement to them to be reminded of what's in this psalm. The first thing you see is that there is a victor and it's not men. And in specific terms, Psalm 2 mentions the rulers, or specifically the kings and the judges of the earth, that they themselves are the ones who need to watch out. I find the contrast interesting. What they had heard the apostles testify about was we were warned and sternly told not to do this anymore and they threatened us a few more times and then they kicked us out. And the psalm almost has exactly the same counsel for the judges and kings of the earth. Be watchful, take warning, show discernment, have reverence, do homage or, or else we're going to get God will be angry with you. It, it flips this equation around. And because the word of God is the truth and the light and men don't understand that, then it's fair to say that this is the true perspective, while the ones that the, San, the, the perspective that the Sanhedrin offered is a backwards perspective, not seeing the truth, not understanding it. So it's immediately a kind of consolation to those in this situation, because I want you to consider what was in their minds prior to Peter and John returning. You know they would have heard that they were in this situation. You know the word would have spread very quickly. So all they know is in one of the first attempts by the early church to, to reach out to the community at large in the temple and teach much in the way Jesus did. The first time out of the gate, Peter and John are arrested by the most powerful court in the land. And they know what happened with Jesus. So you're thinking, if you're one of the early disciples, this is the end. Didn't last very long. What are they going to do to us? I mean, the cycle just seems to be repeating itself. Keep in mind, they were confused enough by the fact that the Messiah was put to death. That, that didn't seem like the kind of thing you'd expect. Then you see the apostles coming under the same kind of persecution. You assume perhaps the same end. And so now you're starting to wonder, is this even something I can be a part of myself? You have to imagine the fear and the doubt and so on. Then the two guys are released almost against odds with no threat, no prosecution. And Psalm 2 is brought to mind by the Spirit. 
reiterating the fact that God is behind these things. And then in the prayer of Acts, you see them begin to put the dots together. Oh, it was your hand orchestrating what Pontius Pilate did. It was your hand who orchestrated what Herod did. You predestined all of that to happen. And you also are the one controlling these situations right now. Like your psalm says, you're still in control. We don't have any reason to fear these men. That doesn't mean they won't bring us to harm one day, perhaps. But that's why the prayer says, give us courage, give us boldness. What would you have prayed when, when you're worried about persecution or opposition? Protect us and take away the persecution and opposition. That's the natural thing to pray. But is it the right thing to pray? If you understand Psalm 2, who is it that has reserved for himself the right to, to be the one to crush the opposition? The king, our king, Christ. It is, that's why Paul can say, leave room for the wrath of God. He will take vengeance. The principle behind that is you're actually usurping the power of God. You're actually taking something away from him that is reserved for him or you're trying to at least. It's not about be nice to your neighbor. I mean, there's a piece of that maybe. But the main issue with leave room for the wrath of God is it's his wrath. It's his to have. You don't get it. It's not yours to take. And so you have to leave that room because his timing for when the wrath will be appointed is perfect. Yours can't get better than his. So leave room for him to act as he is appointed for his son to act. That's the scene of Acts 2. He says, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And when he assigns it to his son in that way, we don't have a right to step in. And, the, and I think that implies I can live with the circumstances I'm in now, whether they bring me to an end or not, because all of this gets handled at a later time by God's hand. And I'm willing to wait for that time and trust in it. And I can take encouragement in the meantime that we're not losing we don't have anything to worry about. God's got the whole thing in control. The Father is in control. In verses 27 and 28, he mentions that there were the Roman authorities, the Gentiles, but there were Jews as well, the people of Israel. They understand all of the people who acted in, in that process of bringing Christ down were all under God's control. Ultimately, he was the one doing it all. In verse 29, they say, God, take note that the persecution that David spoke of has come home to rest on us, and take note in the Greek literally means look upon, implying make note of this somewhere in your ledger so that when you take wrath, you'll remember these people. Take note of this persecution or maybe more to their circumstances. If you're inclined to take wrath, do it now on our behalf with these people. Lastly, when I mentioned earlier that they did not pray what we might have prayed, which is take away all the persecution. What did they pray? Boldness to do what? Continue doing the thing that's going to get them in trouble. Don't take away the trouble. Don't change the authorities' minds about whether to persecute me. Let that take care of itself. Just don't let me fail in the face of persecution. What, a, what an interesting prayer. Not the one I probably would pick first if I was doing it either. Not unless I was informed by Scripture and thought differently. My natural inclination is to say, make this easy. And what they prayed was, make us be willing to do it even though it's hard. They wanted to do it with boldness to complete the task. Remember Jesus said this in John chapter 15. You may remember this, chapter 15, verse 20. Speaking to the disciples, he said, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He did not say, 
you know, work to avoid persecution. He said the opposite. He said, if I, as the master, submitted to persecution, you can't run around assuming you get out of it. Understanding that for us, persecution may look differently than it did in their day. I, I don't want us to run to the assumption that we, we need to seek out death situations in order to be serving the Lord properly. I mean, we know that's not true. But we cannot avoid or try to avoid what makes the job of bringing the gospel to the enemies of God difficult. You can't avoid that. It's difficult. (laughs) It will always be difficult to bring a message to someone who doesn't understand it at first and certainly doesn't agree with it. But that's the job. And then lastly, they ask for wonders and powers to accompany their proclamation of the name of Jesus. Those powerful signs become a very uh, useful tool in overcoming the persecution. Now, I love the way they put this together, and I think this is what they were saying. They were saying what saved Peter and John was a display of a miracle that persuaded 5,000 people to glorify God's name. And in so doing, became a barrier to the Sanhedrin persecuting Peter and John any further than they did. That's clearly brought out in the text. Therefore, we want to go out and do what John and Peter are doing. We want to do it with boldness, so give us boldness to do it. And then, please, give us some signs and wonders along the way to confirm what we're doing and perhaps let that be a defense for us as well against persecution. To win over the people, in other words. To to grant to you glory from the people. So it's actually a very interesting way of doing solving the problem because, in a way, it's taking the persecution and knocking it down a notch. But who's knocking it down? God through his own display of power. It's leaving it to God and asking for it to be done in a way that glorifies him. Verse 32. And the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Just pausing there for a moment. How popular would the church be today if we still had this as a common practice? Verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In some ways, I wonder why they didn't break chapter 4 here and call it chapter 5, because it really is the opening act of what we're about to study in chapter 5. Luke sets the scene here for what's going to come next, and there's actually a fair amount of things going on in in this part of the chapter at the end here that we have to examine. First, Jerusalem had within the city a congregation of believers. We today tend to think congregationally about buildings. And, and that's not wrong per se, but that's a function of the way we've come to organize and meet. But in the early days of the church, there certainly weren't buildings yet. There wasn't any of that infrastructure. They had homes, they had public places, public buildings, and they had streets, open areas. But that was it. You either met in a home if you wanted to be indoors or you found some kind of public facility that would accommodate you like the temple or temple grounds or you just had to go collect somewhere. And that was it. The believers in Jerusalem were also traditionally thought to be very poor. And I think that's not just the fact fact that they were Christian or anything to do with their faith per se. I think that was the fact of Jerusalem. Uh, There is historic evidence to suggest that in this time, 
in these days after Jesus' death, just in this general period of history, that Jerusalem was a relatively poor city. It was a uh, depressed economic time in Israel. And they were suffering. The city generally was a very poor place to live. It attracted a lot of poor people. I mean, that's what happens even today. People who don't have a job or don't have any way to make a living flock to the city hoping to find something. So it was not a place you found a lot of very wealthy people. And so in this situation, you have a relatively poor and yet very numerous early church. If you just do the math for where we've been so far in the book of Acts, you're already over 8,000 believers. That's a lot of people in a community that is so closely knit now and probably just statistically, a lot of them would have been poor. A fair number of them just being who they were from the city probably had very few means. Remember, today's sense of what poor is is rich compared to the historical sense of poor. Historically, the middle class or the the average wage earner lived day to day. They earned enough money at the end of each day to pay for enough food and basic needs for another day. They were day laborers. That was not poor. That was, that was sort of the working class. Poor was someone who, because of infirmity or a widow or something else, weren't even able to keep a daily job. Or the economic situation of the day was such that there weren't jobs. So if you were a day laborer, how long do you go without work before you were in serious hurt and trouble? A few days, right? I mean, how long can you go without food? That's, that's where they were starting to find themselves if they were poor. And it became the pattern, as you see here, for the church to share in what they had for the sake of the needy. And you notice in there it talked about the poor or the needy. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners would sell and bring their proceeds. That's a very dramatic statement. To get anywhere near six, seven, eight thousand people in Jerusalem in this day and to say that none of them were needy, that is a testimony. Huge testimony. That will account for why, when you look in chapter 5, that later in chapter 5, we will see testimony from people in the city about the church. They liked the church. They had a lot of respect for the church. Part of it was this practice of taking care of each other and of being willing, if it was necessary, to even sell property, which was not something you did very often in Israel. Selling property was a big commitment. You're selling someone's inheritance is what you're doing. What prompted this shared love, this self-sacrificial love in the church. They were of one heart, one soul, it says. Well, we know it's the Spirit. That's the binding glue for believers, right? But there's something else going on, which is where chapter 4 gives way to chapter 5. The way I would say it is these were innocent times. The bloom was not off the rose yet. Everything was new and fresh and wonderful. The church was perfect. Like every church you join, the first day is perfect. After about three Sundays, the bloom's off the rose. They're at that point where the blush of faith and the arrival of the Spirit and the miracles of the apostles and all of that is holding the body together, causing a lot of joy. And then one other element here, and that is the anticipation of Christ's return at any moment has probably left them thinking very short term. And the human element is, we can play nice with anyone for a short period of time. I don't want to diminish the value and the, and the importance of the Spirit in creating this. That's absolutely true. But I think early on, things are great. The point in Luke's account at this stage in the book is to show that it's not always going to be sunshine and roses for the church. There is humanity, and humanity brings sin, and that is going to be a part of the nature of the body of Christ as well. And among all this unity, 
Luke says the apostles are giving great witness to the resurrection of Jesus through their own miraculous powers. Here again, and I've said this already in the study, but it's worth repeating. Here again, we see evidence in the text that only the apostles had miraculous powers. The, the teaching that says miraculous powers were common in the church in the early days of the church and so on is a false teaching. Only apostles had miraculous powers. It is a part of being a, an apostle. It is part of the apostolic gift. It is not a common gift. And the text never, and this, this is a good study if you want to go look at something on your own, you will never find in the book of Acts anyone except an apostle or someone whom an apostle has laid hands on and directly anointed, you will never find anyone having these powers except one of those two groups. And the group that gets the hands on, they can't pass it on. So it stops with them. That's because it was something uniquely appointed to these men. And then Luke connects the points in verse 35. He says, The people immediately recognized that the apostles were anointed by Jesus in a unique way, which is why... They would bring and lay these gifts at the apostles' feet. Would you think to do that today? Donating furniture, giving your money, something like that. Would you come and lay it at the feet of your pastor? The whole thought of it is just repulsive, really. I'm sure to the pastor as well. You know, it's wrong. You're paying homage to a man or you would be appearing to, which is not what we do in the church. Why would this have been acceptable in that day? It, it gets to the issue of what an apostle was established for. Jesus said this to the apostles in Matthew, Matthew 16, 19. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there's been a lot of misunderstanding around that verse. And the misunderstanding begins when we assume it's a statement to all Christians. Then we start asking, well, how can that be true? How do I have that power? How do I know if I'm using that power? But it's not given to all Christians. It's given only to the apostles. It goes hand in hand with the apostolic authority. By their gift as apostles, they're uniquely anointed to make determinations on earth concerning spiritual matters because they act as Christ's representative in the early church. I think there's a legitimate question there of how would the apostles know if what they were deciding was something God's will wanted? Because clearly they can't go against his will. My assumption is that just like every spiritual gift, you aren't necessarily consciously aware of it at all. But by the gifting itself, you're guided to the right place. I don't necessarily know if when I open my mouth and teach that I have taught in the Spirit or not. I'm trusting that I'm doing it more often than not. That's the whole point of it being a gift. Not under my control, but under God's control. The only thing I have to do is open my mouth, which, as you know, is no problem. In the case of the apostles, they just had to take stock of, of situations, make determinations and act on those and trust that through their apostolic gift, God was going to bring them to the right conclusion such that they had the keys of the kingdom of heaven at their disposal. Now, this is coming to light at the end of chapter four, because two things are being put just juxtaposed or, or set against one another in the text. The joy and the unanimity of the spirit as these people in the early church were of one mind doing these these self-sacrificial things but doing it in recognition of the authority of God vested in the apostles, bringing it to their feet as if that was God's representative in a unique form for them and respecting the authority of that man as God had anointed him. It's going to be juxtaposed with what we're going to see come next in chapter 5, which is two people, as you know, Ananias and Sapphira, who choose to do differently. And we're going to see the contrast in this. 
what they're doing specifically, just to make clear, is that as someone in the congregation had a need. Now, this is the pattern. It's very specific in the Greek. When someone had a need, someone else, recognizing that need, would come to a decision to sell property or something they owned. It was not just communal living. Hey, everyone who has something, go out there and sell it right now. It was needs-based. We have a family. They need food. Do we have any money? No, everybody's penniless like everyone else. Well, what do we have? Well, I have this home, this property, this land. All right, well, let's go sell it and try to help these people. Then next week, something else comes up. They go through that process again. The text also says that the proceeds were donated as according to the need, meaning, and this again comes out more in the Greek than in the English, not all proceeds were necessarily being brought to the apostles. I might sell a house for 500 denarii and give 200 to the apostles because that's what the need was. It was not a given or it was certainly not required that they give everything. It was a pattern of giving according to the need. But when I sell a house, I have to take and sell the whole house. I can't just sell a room at a time. So I sell the whole thing, take whatever amount of it I need, and I gave it to the apostles, kept the rest. And maybe I gave more of it later. Who knows? They were, represent, they were giving the uh, gift to the apostles, though, because they saw the apostles as a representative of God. So it's not wrong to say that as they made these donations, who were they donating to? Literally, they were giving it to God through a representative anointed to be in that role. Consider their alternative. Had they not wanted to do that, had they wanted to give to God, what was the only other way they could do it in that day? To the temple. But the temple is now the body of Christ, not the building up on the hill anymore. The priesthood is the priesthood of the believer, not the Levite serving in, a, in the old form of the law. If they're going to give to God, this is where you give to God. So in every sense, this is literally the moment they brought to God their gifts. This is the replacement for what they would have done in the past under the law. And then the chapter ends with an example of one man who follows this practice. There is nothing special to be read into this last two verses except to note the name of the person and to just make obvious note of the fact that he is following the pattern. He is an example of the good. So Barnabas is Joseph of Cyprus. The apostles took to calling him Barnabas, which is a way of reflecting his personality. He was an encourager, apparently, and so they chose to call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Barnabas is the cousin of Mark, the author of the gospel. He's one of about 500 men who were said to have seen the resurrected Lord after he resurrected and walked the city for a while. And as a result of having seen the resurrected Lord... He himself has the gift of apostleship. We'll learn that later in Acts 14. Remember, how do you become an apostle? There was the 12. Then there was a second level of apostleship, those who had seen the resurrected Lord. Paul is one of those. James was one of those. And Barnabas is one of those. So there are men who were given the apostleship gift and had all the powers that come with it and had to have been personally acquainted with the Lord for that gift to be possible. That's how they gave it to Matthias. Remember, he had to have known the Lord from the time of John the Baptist. Lastly, we know he becomes a traveling companion of Paul. That's probably what he's most well known for in the book of Acts. Paul mentions him at multiple places in his letters. He was instrumental in establishing the early church with Paul. But he was also one that Paul said was carried away by hypocrisy with Peter in uh, his letter to the Galatians when they were practicing legalism and pretending with Jews that they were still Jewish and with Gentiles that they were Gentile. Hypocrisy. Here we are in the early church looking at him as an example. So let's go quickly to verse 1 of chapter 5. Let's look at the opposite problem. First, the man, Ananias. Verse 1, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up and carried him out. After carrying him out, they buried him. So Luke's account of Ananias and Sapphira here is the first serious sin in the early church. Now, we're not going to say the first sin because there's hardly a day goes by without somebody sinning. That's not the point. But in terms of its effect on the culture of the church, here's the first example where somebody steps outside the lines in a significant way against the authority and the direction of the, of the apostles, challenging them in a sense and creating a serious problem for the church. First example in the text. And these, this contrast between chapters 4 and 5 are pretty obvious, right? First, you have the contrast between honest Barnabas and dishonest Ananias and Sapphira. Secondly, you have a contrast here between the external threats to the church from the authorities, the Jewish authorities, but now you have an internal threat to the church from the sin of the congregation. How did God deal with the external threat through the authorities that were coming upon them? Now, keeping that in mind, how does he deal with the internal threat to the church? Because history will show we've always had both. So he shows himself in both situations. The Lord's going to protect his church from both threats. So as the story proceeds in keeping with Barnabas, they sell property just like Barnabas did. But then that's where the parallel ends because now they start a conspiracy. And their conspiracy is to hold back some of the proceeds. Now remember, they're not obligated to give anything. What they choose to do, though, is to place some of the money before the apostles, but claim that it was the full amount. Their sin is to hold back something that they say they're giving. So they had two choices if they wished to do it better. Give it all and say they're giving it all. Or only give what they wanted to give and just acknowledge that it's not all. Their sin, their offense is against God with respect to the holding back. This is parallel to things you see in the Old Testament. In particular, in the book of Joshua, Achan or Achan holds back something that he is told to give up after the city of Jericho is destroyed. There's a time when the nation of Israel, as they entered under Joshua's leadership into the land, and they come up against city after city, and these city nations that are in the land get destroyed one at a time. One of the first ones is Jericho. They go and they take Jericho, and then they plunder the city, lots of valuables in the city. But Joshua declares that all of the goods that they find must be given up so that they can be used for God's tabernacle. When he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And that word keep back in the Greek is the same word that's used in the Greek Septuagint for the Old Testament in which Joshua accuses Achan for holding back something that he had been told needed to go to God. You've heard it said also in Scripture that it's better not to vow than to vow and to break your vow. This comes under that context of a vow. He has essentially vowed before God in the form of Peter standing there. He has vowed to have given all that he sold the property for to God. What he actually put in front of Peter, though, was a part of it. He held back some of what he said he had dedicated to God. Once he says, I sold my house and all of this is God's, he was then obligated to bring all of it to God. He held back. He could have, as you say, as Peter said, 
He could have said, God, I'm not going to give you all. I'm only going to give you half. And then he would have been okay. The problem was he saw it as men. He saw himself as saying something to men and fooling men, potentially, so as to gain the praises of men. What Peter says is, when you do this before the apostles, you're doing, them, you're doing it before a witness of God. In, in the sense that you said something to God, and now you're trying to fool God. And that becomes a punishable offense in a unique way. You could ask yourself, why aren't people getting struck down every time they do something wrong today? Well, because the building would be empty. But <laughs> more to the point, because in part because of the times and in part because of the audience. We don't have apostles today and we're not the early church. Those two things fundamentally change God's need for that kind of justice in the moment. But they both come into play here. So in this case, to, come, to go through the text a little further, Joshua was... Achan's apostle in that day, God's leader for the nation of Israel, God's representative on earth to the people. And when Josh, Joshua told the people, take everything out of the city and let's give it to God. And Achan held something back for his family. And that was discovered later. God punishes the people by sending a bunch of them into the battle to die. And then Joshua says, why did we all die? And then it came to light that, well, we're all dying because God has put us under judgment because someone held back something from God. That led Joshua to go figure out who it was and then put Achan to death. In this case, it's a similar situation, and the text even suggests it by using the same word, kept back, held back. It's an issue in hypocrisy and in denying God what is rightfully God's once you've vowed, once you've said this is yours. Peter instantly discerns it. Another apostolic gift, the gift to discern truth in this way. He's the best Agatha Christie, right? He, there's, there's no way you could not, he could not know something was going to happen if God chose to reveal it to him. And it's another spiritual component of his apostolic power. He says to Ananias, he says, Satan has instigated this desire for you to lie to the Holy Spirit and hold back this proceed. Ananias is the one who chose to sin. Peter says that later in that same set of verses. He says in verse four, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? So before you run to think Satan is the problem, understand Peter has said clearly he conceived to do this in his heart. But earlier he says Satan has filled your heart to lie. So there is a process in which Satan influenced his heart. And he conceived something specific in sin, having been influenced by Satan. He seeks weak members of the body, really any of us at any at a given time, and then entices those members of the body, to act against the unity and the love of the saints, against the commands of Scripture and, and the direction of the Spirit. He doesn't have to do anything against unbelievers. He already owns them. He just uses them. But he cannot exert any direct power over believers. He can only influence them externally. So for an unbeliever, he can indwell, he can direct in a very specific sense. He has kind of carte blanche for them. For a believer, it's an indirect kind of influence only because he cannot indwell. And because the power that is in us is greater than him, he cannot overrule that power per se. But he does it through external means like temptation or fear or deception. Things that become fertile ground for our own sin nature then to take hold of that and put it to work. So, for example, one that we don't think of very often is fear. Fear is brought to bear on us in some context. And then it just does the natural work in a heart that's not counseled and grounded in Scripture to overlook fear and to live by faith. If you live by your fear, he can drive you through fear all day long. Fear of sickness, fear of losing your job, fear of people not loving me, fear of whatever. And I start running to do things that I shouldn't do out of a fear. 
or out of a deception that I may not have enough money or out of a temptation that I need this thing I really want. I mean, there's some way in which he'll produce that fertile ground. We then see sin take hold because we make decisions. No such thing as Satan made me do it. Devil made me do it. But it is true that he is there to try to influence us. Paul says in Second Corinthians that the defense against Satan's ability to deceive and to direct is prayer and firm knowledge of God's word. For example, Second Corinthians 2.11, when Paul says why he himself will not be taken advantage of by Satan, he says, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not ignorant. Ignorance here being the, the opposite of knowledge of God's word. I'll give you another one, a better one you'd know already, Ephesians 6. The premise of that whole section is, as he says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The schemes are these external influences he is using at all times to try to get us to make bad decisions, which we will make quite often, unfortunately. And then Paul in verse 13 says, take up, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The full armor of God. And if you know the way that passage moves out, one of the one of the elements of that armor is the word of God. Considering what Peter tells Ananias, it would have been safe for him to do one of those other options. But in this case, he holds back and he's in trouble. So as Peter was speaking, as he finishes, Ananias falls dead. Luke, the doctor, interestingly, makes no attempt to diagnose the problem. Doesn't say anything except he just stopped breathing. Now, we know it was a supernaturally produced death, but that kind of begs the question, right? We always die when God wants us to. It doesn't really change. This situation is no different than any other. Just because we see it happen in a car wreck, for example, doesn't mean God didn't anoint that moment as the day of death. It just means he, put, he chose a purpose with the day. Here, he chose this purpose on this day for this man based on his circumstances. There's nothing in the text to clearly connect Peter to the death. So did Peter act to take Ananias' life? In other words... We know it's God's power, yes, but did Peter decide this is the moment? You know what? You're dead. And then he fell over. There's nothing in the text to clearly link the two. Maybe even Peter was surprised at the fact that he died. But Peter ends by saying, you lied to God, which sounds an awful lot like a judge declaring a verdict. And then the penalty comes instantly. And then if we were to go further in the text, which we won't do tonight, but if we go further into the text of Sapphira, you will see in his response to her that it seems he does have a hand in this process. His words to her seem to suggest he is at work making a decision here that he needs to make. The last question for the night is, why was his sin worthy of such an extreme response? Because as I said earlier, if it were just the matter of sin, we'd all be in trouble. All sin is worthy of death. Remember Romans 6.23? The wages of sin or death. So you cannot begin to parse out the sin per se. You can't say, well, this kind of sin, when you do this particular sin, it always needs to result in death. This, my friends, is not the last time somebody held back from God. Our sin is producing death all the time. People have a promiscuous life and they die of sexual diseases. People go off drinking too much and die in a car wreck on the way home. People are constantly dying because they have sin. I mean, that's a natural consequence quite often. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's delayed. Sometimes it's obvious in the connection. Sometimes we never put the two together, but it was still there. So the principle that's being displayed here, sin has consequences, which in many cases are death consequences. That's playing out every day all over the world. 
But we always understand that there's something unique about this. To say what I just said, true as it is, doesn't really answer the question because this kind of specific thing is not happening to our knowledge anymore. So if you ask yourself what is different in this situation, you come down to two things. It's not the person. Ananias is just like any of us. It's not the sin itself, holding back from God, lying to God. People are still doing that even today. It is the circumstances and the audience are the only two things we can't replicate. We cannot replicate those two things today. So what makes it different? It's those two elements. This is a young church, by any definition. And this was the first major issue of sin. And as such, many would have naturally watched to see how this played out in order to better understand how will the church deal with such behavior. And what is the real authority of the apostles? Do they have any real authority? I mean, what, what, what would the apostles do before they saw this happen, what would they have assumed the apostles might have done in response to this kind of a situation? Do you take them to court? Do you take them to the Pharisees? What is the religious court of that day? Well, none of those are courts that would have anything to say or care about what's going on in the church. Where does the church find its authority? Remember, Jewish believers, they understood authority in a religious context. They just saw it displayed in the Sanhedrin. They knew where you went when people didn't do the right thing. Where do you go in the church when you don't do the right thing? Is God going to show up and display his authority in the leadership of this organization like he's done in the previous one or not? If the sin was allowed to be unchecked in the early church, imagine how long before all respect for authority would be gone in the church. The strong response then to Ananias' sin was necessary, number one, to make clear the seriousness and the legitimacy of the church to handle its own affairs in this way, the seriousness that God put to Honesty and to uh, forthrightness in the community in those early days. The, the fact that he was about judging his people as he said he was. It was a confirmation of all that they had read and heard about what this new entity meant. And then secondly, it was the legitimacy of the apostle's authority. When they lied, when he held back and lied to the apostle, he was doing it essentially to God's surrogate on earth for leadership purposes. And that demanded a response. Otherwise, there would have been no respect for that authority whatsoever. Where Luke goes next after this whole experience with Ananias and then Sapphira is he shows the effect of this in the church and in the community over the rest of the chapter to include a little scene later we'll study in which people were fighting for a chance just to get into a position where as Peter walked through the streets, his shadow would touch them. Because, again, they start to venerate the man and they start to see him as the power, not God. I mean, you understand how people's minds think that way. But it reflects how powerfully this, set, this situation changed people's perspective on the apostles and on the role of them to lead the church, which was incredibly important to the early church being established in an orderly way. How is it that someone like Peter or John or Paul could write a letter in the early days of the church, have it sent by someone else, walked across the, the hills to a church that knew that Peter, John or Paul was never going to get there on his own? And yet that letter carried so much authority that when it was read, everybody did exactly what it said. Why would that letter carry force? Because of this. God established their authority in this way so that he could use them to enforce and educate and train the early church. This is where you see the keys to the kingdom at work. When he can look at someone doing the wrong thing and say, you just lied to God and through that declaration, find him falling dead. That's heaven binding what was bound on, on earth. Father, thank you, Lord, for the teaching tonight. And by teaching, Father, I refer to what the Spirit has done, not what men have done. Thank you that you've opened our eyes and drawn us into the Word. 
But thanking, I think, Father, especially tonight about the church and the way you founded it. Thank you, Father, for the examples of men and women who were selfless and who worked in the face of opposition and persecution. Thank you for the way that those examples could come back today and, and educate us and train us. Let us uh, look into our lives and look for ways to be more selfless and to be more generous and to be more bold. And thank you, Father, as well for the, for the chance to share these insights with others in the body here tonight and in the weeks to come. I pray, Father, we'd be uh, watched over and protected over the two weeks we're gone, but then brought back according to your will and allowed to continue in the study. We thank you, Father, for all the gifts and, and all the service that take place here and for your word. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.